Welcome back, everyone, to our podcast, Let's Talk Murder. I'm Amber. And I'm Michelle. I hope everyone has had a great week. Our week's been pretty busy celebrating one of my brother's birthdays and just spending time together. Yeah, it's been pretty busy, and today we're actually celebrating Michelle's birthday, so happy birthday! Thank you. Before we get started, if you're listening to us from YouTube, don't forget to hit the subscribe button below so you don't miss out on any of our podcasts. And also, if you happen to be listening to us from one of our podcast apps, go ahead and follow us so you can be kept up to date on our podcast as well. In today's episode, I will be talking about the yogurt shop murders. The yogurt shop murder case is the unsolved quadruple homicide of 13-year-old Amy Ayers, 17-year-old Eliza Thomas, sisters 17-year-old Jennifer Harbinson, and 15-year-old Sarah Harbinson. The case started on December 6, 1991, in Austin, Texas, and it's said to be the most ugly, grisly crime in the town. Around 10 p.m. that evening, a man in line at the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt yogurt shop was hassling customers while he was waiting, but then was given permission to use the restroom in the back. While in the back, he took a very long time, and investigators believe he may have jammed the rear door open. The two employees working that evening were Eliza Thomas and Jennifer Harverson. They went to work and had a day like every other day. Jennifer's sister, Sarah, and their friend, Amy Ayers, showed up when the store was due to close for the evening to get a ride home with the two girls when they were finished. At 11.27 p.m., dispatch received a call from the local police officer about a fire and reached out to John Jones, who happened to be the first investigator on the scene of the store fire. The building on fire was the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt Yogurt Shop. It turns out there was a robbery, fire, and murders committed all at the same time. They believe two individuals came and took $540 that was missing from the register and forced the girls by gunpoint back Sarah's hands had been bound behind her with a pair of underwear, and she had also been gagged and raped. Jennifer was not bound, but her hands were behind her back. Eliza had been gagged, and her hands were also tied behind her back. All three had been severely charred and shot in the back of the head. Unlike the others, Amy's body was found in a separate part of the shop. She was not charred, but she had received second and very early third-degree burns on 25 to 30% of her body. She was found with a sock-like cloth around her neck. She had also been shot the same way the others were. However, the bullet had missed her brain. She also had a second bullet which caused severe damage to her brain, exiting through her lateral cheek and jawline. Investigators 
Hopkins thought that the killer stacked all four bodies on top of another. But Amy had pulled herself off and managed to crawl to a different part of the store. When responding firefighters arrived at the shop that night, the front door was still locked with the girl's smoldering body still inside. This is one reason it is believed that the men had been to the back door and knew their way out as if they planned the whole thing prior to going through with the murders. Barbara Ayers Wilson, who was the mother of Jennifer and Sarah, said that she received a knock on the door at 3 a.m. and that it was when she learned that both of her daughters had died in the fire that night. Wilson was told that the girls were stacked on top of each other when they were set on fire. That is really sad. Uh, that'd be a difficult um thing to do to go over and tell the mother of the kids that they didn't make it. Yeah. One thing that hindered the investigation was that the fire department was called before the investigators. Now, that may seem confusing for most because you would think that if there is a fire, you need to get it out, right. but, but the amount of firemen who walked around the crime scene and the amount of water that potentially washed away the only chance of finding evidence, it turned out that it was not helpful and really made it hard for investigators. Yeah, that would be like a hard situation because like, yeah, they're not going to be able to get in to get the girls until the, the, the fire is controlled but at the same time if you're putting out the fire you're washing away potential evidence to help find yeah the person involved now i'm not saying that the firemen were wrong for putting out the fire i mean that's what they were there to do so it's a lose-lose situation at that point but they were able to figure out that there were two different types of gun used that night due to the gunshot wounds. The two different types of guns were a three eighty and a twenty two. This is why they believe that there are two individuals involved in the murders. Now, once they were able to identify the types of guns they were searching for, they released the information to the public in hopes of getting leads to who may have done this to the girls. With the fire pretty much destroying the yogurt shop, it was hard to get any evidence, but they were able to get DNA. Well, I mean, that's a good thing that they were able to get DNA. Yeah, that's like the most important thing. Within the first week, there was around 340 people of interest in the murders and throughout the investigation austin police admitted that over 50 people had written confessions of the murders so there were 50 people that were like hey i did the murder like why would you admit that you did the murders because then you're going to be locked up for the rest of your life yeah like that that's weird they also interviewed 52 customers that visited the yogurt shop that day. Multiple of the customers had stated that just before the shop closed for the evening, there were two men sitting in the back of the shop. One of the men was described as having light, short hair, like 
a dirty blonde. And was said to have been about five foot six and in his late twenties or early thirties. She says the other man was described as being bigger and both were observed wearing big coats. One, she says, is thought to have a green army looking jacket. And the other is thought to have a black jacket. According to witnesses, the men are believed to have been driving a green car that evening. Just eight days after the fire, there was an arrest made at the mall near the yogurt shop. Maurice Pierce was found with a twenty-two caliber pistol on his person. Now, one of the guns used in the murders was also a twenty-two caliber, but the guns were unmatchable. So there was no way for them to either rule out the gun or confirm it was the one used that night. Now, the guns not being able to match did not mean Pierce was an innocent man. In an interview with the investigators, Pierce admitted that he was the getaway driver, but he was not the one who committed the crimes. So he admitted that he was part of the crime? That's not that smart. Right, okay. I just wanted to make sure that I understood that correctly. So he was saying that he was part of it, just didn't shoot anybody. Yeah. Okay. Pierce also said that there weren't just two suspects. There were actually three. Pierce claimed that Forrest Wellborn, Michael Scott, and Robert Springsteen were the suspects that committed the robbery, fire, and the murders. But after the interview, his story started to fall apart. Pierce agreed to wear a wire and go speak with Forrest Wellborn, but during the meeting, authorities say Wellborn clearly had no clue what Pierce was talking about. After the meeting, all three young men were brought in for questioning, but there was no confession and not enough evidence to charge them. So the men were set free. And investigators were back to square one. But hold on. So he admitted that he was part of the crime. The getaway driver. Yeah. So even though they couldn't confirm that the other guys were part of it, wouldn't that give them enough? Like, he confessed. So couldn't they get him for being part of the crime? Like, Yeah. I wonder why they... Or, I don't know if they... I mean, you haven't finished the story, but I don't know why they wouldn't have charged him with something since he he confirmed or admitted that he was part of it. Yeah. Two months from the date of the fire would go by without any suspects or any evidence that would help the case. A man by the name of Kenneth McDuff, who is an infamous serial killer, was investigated... But when they questioned him about the murders, he responded by telling them that if he would have done it, he would tell them because he would be proud of his work. I mean, that's one way to get cleared. Like, that's yeah. kind of creepy. That is very creepy. It turns out that there was a man spotted in his car outside the yogurt shop that night of the murders. There were a few witnesses that gave a description and a sketch was created. Now the sketch released to the public, and it turns out there was another sketch of a man who the sex crime units say 
kidnapped and sexually assaulted another female just weeks before in Austin. So, they created a sketch. My question is, does it match the guy that previously said that he was in the car? We don't know that. But there's another sketch from another incident that happened. And they, okay. So now this person's probably in charge of like this murder and prior. Okay. In the other case, the one that had happened a few weeks prior, there were three men who authorities were looking for, and that sketch is one of them. The thing about the first case is that three men had fled to Mexico, but two of the three were found and arrested. One of the two men happened to be the one that matched the sketch. So now they have the person that they think yeah. did the crime, like both crimes. Okay. Not only did the investigators go and question the men, so did the authorities in Mexico. When Jones and his team questioned the men, they denied any involvement in the yogurt shop murders. But when the Mexico authorities questioned them, they said that the men confessed to the murders. Even though they had a confession, the details that the men gave about that night were not consistent to the actual murders. When questioned about the guns, they did not claim to use the same type of guns that had really been used. So after Jones found out about the inconsistency with the case and the men, his team went back to interview the men for a second time. This time, the men stated again that they did not commit the crimes. This is when Jones started to wonder if the Mexican authorities were the ones who came up with the story. So after the second interview and all the inconsistencies, the men were cleared from the crime and yet again, Jones and his team were back at square one. Jones says... In the following months, there would be six more confessions made, but none of them were valid. The case went cold until October 1999. That October, Jones left the homicide team. A new, fresh set of eyes were on the case and went back to the beginning to see what they were actually able to find. That is when an arrest was made. The arrest won't surprise you. It was Maurice Pierce, Forrest Wellborn, Michael Scott, and Robert Springsteen. So basically they went back and they arrested the original four? Yeah. So I wonder what made them go back to the original four? Like what evidence they had that um, made them make the arrest? It was probably because this time Scott and Springsteen confessed to the murders. Oh. His confession, Springsteen even went as far as to say that he raped one of the girls after he shot her. Now this is important because both men were charged of murder. Pierce and Wellborn never went to trial due to the lack of evidence and juries declining to addict. Scott received life in prison, 
but Springsteen was sent to death row. This, however, was not the end of the case, because it turns out that the DNA was taken from a rape victim that night of the murders. Both men had spent 10 years in prison for the murders of the girls. So when the DNA was sent for a match, it turns out that it did not match either man. Okay, so Springsteen admitted that he raped a victim, but it wasn't his DNA. But he literally spent 10 years on death row for something that he didn't really do. Why would you admit to doing something if, like, you didn't actually do it? I don't know. And to find out that after you admitted that you're on death row, that would be absolutely terrible. That is why I said the confession of rape and murder from Springsteen was important. So why would the men confess to a crime that would send them to prison for life and potentially death? The men said that it was because the investigators were not letting them leave when they were told that they were innocent. So after being questioned so much, they gave up and said that they did it. That is terrible. Yeah. Later in the case against the two men, the charges were overturned, leaving the case unsolved. Swan, who said the department had spent an incalculable number of hours on the case, said he still thinks Springsteen and Scott were involved in the crime. Both men provided details not released to the public about the crime. So that would be a red flag. Like if they were telling the investigators details, but nobody else had been told them. Like that would, how would people like in the jury overlook that? Like, yeah, that would make them in plate either somebody that was involved in it told them that or they were the ones that were actually involved. So I agree there, I guess. Investigators took the DNA sample and put in the database to see if they could get a match, and they thought they were on to a lead when the database showed a potential match that was submitted from the FBI. Once they found the potential match, they reached out to the FBI to confirm the match, but at first the FBI was not wanting to cooperate and work with the investigators. It took a lot of pressure for the FBI to open up and agree with helping them, but the answers they received was not what the Texan investigators wanted to hear. The potential match was indeed not a match, leaving this case unsolved once again. It is very tragic that the cases went on for so long and it's still unsolved. The person responsible for this could very well be out there among the community, and that's scary to me. That would be scary to know that, and sad for the families to not have any answers at this point. Yeah. yeah. So that's all that we have for you guys today. Be sure to let us know what you think in the comments below. Also, if you have a case that you would like us to cover, just let us know in the link in the description. and. Thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.